On that first Easter morning 2,000 years ago, uh, there was nobody waiting outside of the tomb that Jesus was laid in, uh, counting down. Nobody was like, 10, 9, 8, 7, here it comes. Everybody in the original Easter story uh, didn't think that Jesus would rise again. There was no one there because they expected that Jesus would do what all dead people do, and that was to remain dead. When Jesus' followers went to peer in that tomb, they assumed what everybody assumed, and that there wouldn't be a resurrection. And if you're someone uh, who's here this morning uh, who would acknowledge that, you know, Jesus was a historical figure, that he said some really good things, but that resurrection business sounds a little uh, not real, uh, then you're in good company because those who are with Jesus that first Easter Sunday didn't expect that Jesus would rise from the dead either. The truth was that nobody was expecting no body. To say it in the words of Jadoni, nobody was expecting no body. <laughs> if you're in Mexico, then you would know what that means. Uh, the reason we believe Jesus rose from the dead was not because the Bible tells us so. The reason that we believe that Jesus rose from the dead is because eyewitnesses that were there tell us so. The resurrection was what convinced the first century followers that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that he was God in a body. The men and women that were most closest to the action, the writers who documented these eyewitness accounts were themselves doubters. They weren't expecting a resurrection, but the resurrection is what launched this movement of faith that we refer to as Christianity. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Without the resurrection, there is no faith. Without the resurrection, Jesus was just another rabbi, another person who had uh, good things to say, another person who was a wannabe Messiah that died, and then history moves on. But it was because of the resurrection that something happened that changed the course of history, that continues to change the course of history today. So in our Bible, we have not just biblical texts, but we have eyewitness accounts from those people that were close to Jesus, from those people that witnessed these things. There's a number of people that give us eyewitness accounts of these events in our scriptures. We have Matthew, who was an eyewitness who documented his experience, his time with Jesus during his earthly ministry, and then what he witnessed through the resurrection. Matthew uh, wrote the gospel of Matthew, uh, and later Matthew would die for his belief in the resurrection around 60 AD. He would be uh, speared to death and staked. He would be staked to the ground because he refused to actually give up on that belief of what he saw with his own eyes, that Jesus was resurrected. Mark, who wrote the gospel of Mark, gives an eyewitness account through the eyes of Peter. And so Mark interviewed Peter, talked to Peter, got Peter to recite uh, what had happened. And Mark was uh, dragged to death because of his faith in the resurrected Jesus. Then we have Luke, who was a doctor, who was also a Greek, and he was so intrigued by these, uh, these accounts of the resurrection of Jesus that he investigated and he wanted to find out for himself uh, what was really happening. And so he wrote down what he, have, he had found, and that's what we have in the Gospel of Luke. And this is what Luke says at the beginning of his Gospel. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the world. 
With this in mind, since I myself have actually investigated everything from the beginning, I also decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke himself would later die a martyr by being hanged from an olive tree because he would not give up his belief and conviction about the resurrection of Jesus. And then we have Peter. Peter, the one who believed, and then he unbelieved, and then he told the little girl that he actually never believed, and then he experienced the resurrected Jesus, and then he said he did believe. Peter would eventually be beheaded by Nero because of his belief in the resurrection of Jesus. And reflecting on this as an old man, Peter wrote this account. He says, praise be to the God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Before the resurrection, Peter, in his fear and unbelief, ran for his life. But after the resurrection, Peter actually ran into danger because he believed in something that was bigger than this life. Peter's faith was not tethered to this imaginary God that doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. Peter actually believed with conviction that this God was worth following, even if it meant death and suffering for himself. And if you have lost faith in your life because of the pain and suffering in this world, or maybe you've lost faith because of the pain and suffering that you've experienced in your own life, I would challenge you and invite you to reconsider faith because the early disciples that chose to put their faith in Jesus put their faith in him, even though it meant suffering and death. They were convinced that they should walk faithfully even through trials because of what they had seen. James, the brother of Jesus, concluded that his brother was his Lord, and there might be no greater proof of the resurrection than that. What would it take for your brother to convince you that he was God? I mean, I, I have pictures of my own childhood trauma with my older brother sitting on top of me, his, elbow, his knees on my elbows and, you know, spitting, letting spit come out of his mouth just to suck it back up into his mouth at the last second, except he didn't always make it. And some drops hit my face. You know, I can picture him just saying, tell me I'm God. Say it. Say I'm God. Jesus didn't do that to James. James didn't believe that Jesus was God. James didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah until, until James saw Jesus in his resurrected body after he had died. James, the brother of Jesus, Jesus would later pastor the church in Jerusalem and he would be stoned to death because he refused to deny his faith in the resurrected Jesus. He couldn't deny what he saw. And then we have Paul who once zealously persecuted followers of Jesus was trying to extinguish the church, but he would eventually be beheaded by Nero at Rome because of his faith in Jesus as well. He wrote this in a letter to the church in Corinth. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared 
to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me, also to one abnormally born. Again, Paul is saying that there's eyewitnesses accounts of what's actually happened. And it's not just my word. It's the word of the apostles. It's not just the word of the apostles, but there's 500 people who actually saw Jesus in his resurrected body. And there's, many of them are still alive. And you could go and talk to them yourselves and hear the story. Again, before the resurrection, nobody was expecting no body. This wasn't an elaborate hoax. This wasn't something that the disciples thought up ahead of time and said, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we fabricated the story that Jesus was resurrected? Nobody even had resurrection on their mind. At the time of Jesus' death, they thought they wasted the last three years following this rabbi, this failed Messiah, and they left the cross on that Good Friday, disappointed, thinking they had wasted their life. The reason we believe Jesus rose from the dead isn't just because the Bible tells us so, but it's because we have eyewitness accounts from the time of Jesus that saw Jesus' resurrected body. And 10 out of the 12 disciples chose, 10 of the 12 disciples chose to give up their lives to be martyrs because they were convinced of what they saw with their own eyes and they thought that was worth dying for. John was the one disciple that uh, we know died a natural death. Uh, and he was a disciple that saw everything. And in John's account, we also see the story of the disciple Thomas, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, but John's account, we can read in the Gospel of John. And in John 19, we see the things that John saw. We see that John saw that Jesus was falsely accused, that, that people said he... Um, that he was a criminal, that he was worth being crucified, that he was put on trial for things he didn't do. He's beaten, he's whipped, and he's whipped with, with the this type of whip that had shrapnel at the end. So when, when he would be whipped, the flesh would come off. John sees it all, describes it in his gospel in chapter 19. John sees that Pilate gives in to the pressure of the crowd who is yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate's saying, this man didn't do anything wrong. He's done nothing worthy of death. And still they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Then Pilate gives in to the demands of the crowd and says, fine, crucify him. And John was there when they drove the stakes into Jesus' hands and into his feet. John was there when they raised up the cross to show Jesus before all of Rome as a demonstration of what happens when you disobey Rome and you don't bow your knee to Caesar. This is what Rome did to ensure that there was obedience among its citizens. John was there to see it all. John was standing there when Jesus was hanging from the cross, when he was suffering, when he was laboring to breathe. And we see the account in John that in that moment of suffering, John looks at, uh, that Jesus looks at John and John is standing beside Jesus' mother, Mary. And Jesus says to John, take care of my mom. Take care of my mom. And John is there as Jesus, right before Jesus breathes his last breath, he says, it is finished. And then he witnesses John, or he witnesses Jesus bow his head and die. 
we read this account of what John saw in John chapter 19. John writes this, the man who saw, and this, the man he's referring to is himself. John loves to talk about himself in the th- third person. It's kind of odd, but uh, that's what he does. Uh, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. Even though you weren't there to see it, this is what actually happened. And so we read this in John 19, and we're like, oh, that's great, John. It's not that hard to believe that there was this wannabe Messiah, this rabbi who kind of stood up against Rome, who claimed that he was bringing in a new kingdom, and he was crucified, and he died. Not hard to believe. But John is saying, no, not that part. It's the next part. It's the next part that I'm about to tell you that you're going to have a hard time believing. I had a hard time believing it. The disciples had a hard time believing it. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you with everything I am that what I'm about to describe actually happened. And then John goes on to recap the events that happened after that. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea take Jesus' body off the cross after he had died and they prepare it for burial and they bring it to the tomb where he was going to be laid. Mary Magdalene on Sunday morning shows up and she sees a stone rolled away. And what's her first response when she sees the stone rolled away? She doesn't think Jesus must have been resurrected. She thinks somebody took the body because remember, nobody was expecting a resurrection. And so she shows up and she says, somebody's taken the body. And then she goes to tell Peter and John. And so Peter and John hear the, that Jesus' body wasn't in the tomb. And then John tells us, so Peter and the other disciples started running for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. And remember, John talks in the third person. So he's saying, you know, this is the account of Jesus, but let me make it a little bit about me. Uh, I'm a really fast person. I can run really quick, and Peter's slow. Uh, So the other disciple, as a side note, outran Peter. He reached the tomb first. Uh, I win. Uh, I feel like this is like the human part of John. Like if I were writing a gospel, this is the type of thing that I would slip in. Like I'm a competitive person. You know, I'm, I'm a fast person. Uh, so he gets there first and he bent over to look in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. So Peter, uh, John gets there first, but then Peter goes into the tomb and sees it first. And then they saw these pieces of linen that were lying there that Jesus was wearing and they were separated and they were folded as if someone had done a load of laundry and had prepared them and set them aside. This is what Peter sees. It's like, this is odd. And then Peter minds, their minds start to go, what has happened? Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went inside and he saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. And so John, after he reminds us again that he was the one that reached the tomb first, nice flex, goes in and he sees with his own eyes and then he begins to believe that something he wasn't expecting happened. Then Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. 
She's at the tomb. She's crying. Jesus is there. She thinks Jesus is a gardener, a groundkeeper. And Jesus asks her why he's crying. And, and she responds by saying, they've taken my Lord because that's what she thinks has happened. I don't know where they've put him. And then Jesus says to her, Mary, he uses her name. And when Jesus says her name, she looks up and her eyes are open. She realizes that this is Jesus. And that Mary is actually the first eyewitness to the resurrection. With, and that in and of itself should actually encourage us to see the, how historically accurate this document is. Because anybody who was trying to convince something of somebody of something that actually didn't happen, anybody that was trying to move forward a hoax, would never put a woman as the first eyewitness to the event. In the first century, women, their testimony was not valid. It was not authoritative. And so if you wanted to convince somebody that something actually happened, you would get men to testify that something had happened. Mary is the first eyewitness. Jesus, at the same time, elevates the authority of women in his gospel, and, she put, and he puts her as the first eyewitness to the resurrection account. John goes on to tell us what, what happened. Jesus then appears to his disciples on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders because they were afraid. As followers of this new Messiah, this new king, who Rome just crucified because of his kingship, they thought they might be next. And so they're hiding and they're afraid. Jesus actually shows up as they're hiding and came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw their Lord. They weren't expecting it. What a sight to see. When the one you'd been following, the one you'd loved, the one that you had given your life for, who you thought was dead, where all hope was gone, that they saw the resurrected body of Jesus. What a sight to see for the disciples. Except there was one disciple that wasn't there. There was one disciple that missed out. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. He wasn't with them. And so he had to hear about this event secondhand, the experience of other people secondhand. Have you ever felt like you have been on the outside looking in? Have you ever felt like you've heard other people's stories about faith, other people's story about God, and you're like, where was I? How come that didn't happen to me? How come that experience wasn't my experience? My friends are so certain of what they believe, but I'm struggling with doubt. My story is different than their story. If you've ever found yourself in that place, this is where Thomas finds himself. He was scattered. He was crushed. He was hopeless. And then there's this experience that the disciples have, and he's on the outside. He wasn't a part of it. And so he gets to hear about it secondhand. The other disciples are telling him. He's referred to as Didymus. And Didymus in Greek just means twin. And so it's likely that uh, Thomas had a twin. But I think it's interesting because we could also see Thomas as having twin personalities. That there's a, there's a part of Thomas that wants to be hopeful, but there's a part of Thomas that is doubting. There's two parts of him. 
And I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like two people. There's a part of me that has hope and there's a part of me that's hopeless. There's a part of me that has optimism and there's a part of me uh, that doesn't. There's a part of me that has faith and there's also a part of me that has doubts. If you find yourself ever in that balance of tension of faith and doubt and questions and sometimes being on the outside looking in, this is the twin experience that Thomas had. And so Thomas, not with the disciples, hearing about everything secondhand, he told the disciples, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his size, I will not believe. I will not give my time anymore to following these false ideas. I've wasted three years of my life putting faith and trust into this person we call Jesus, and I'm not going to be duped again. I'm done hoping. I'm done trying. I've tried it. So unless I see, we see how modern Thomas is, those two words, unless I and see. We see that Thomas is speaking as an individual. It's not enough for him to believe the testimony of the community. He wants an individual experience with Jesus like his friends had. And unless I see, he's looking for empirical evidence that this is worth putting his faith in. Empiricism is just simply the word that refers to our knowledge being derived from our senses and our experiences. It came from the rise of experimental science. And so many of us are empirical even in how we approach faith. I need to understand it. I need to see it. I need to touch it. I need, to, I need the evidence. And Thomas says, unless I see, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to put my trust in Jesus. And then it says a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And I've read the story many times, and I often read over this this verse and move on to the next part. But this, I think, is so profound that that Thomas is a doubter, that Thomas doesn't want to be duped again, that Thomas has been there, done that. Thomas is in this place where his friends experienced something that he didn't experience, and he's on the outside looking in. And we see that a week later, that Thomas stuck around with his friends in community, in his doubts, in his questions, in his hopelessness for the next week. That Thomas chose to be with them. Thomas chose to be with them. Thomas doesn't get enough credit. We often refer to Thomas as doubting Thomas. But the truth is all the disciples were doubting. None of the disciples were outside the tomb waiting for resurrection. But Thomas was just kind of last of the party. I don't think we give Thomas enough credit for staying in the faith community, even in the midst of his doubts and his questions. And I've been a pastor for quite some time, and, I've, and I'm not sure why this happens, but I've seen it happen many, many times. When people don't have it, their expectations aren't met. When the, hope they found, when the hope they had wasn't met, when they have a, an experience of disappointment, of disillusionment, of pain, of suffering, 
where they realize that their story is different than other people's story. And so what do they do? They remove themselves from the faith community. I think when we look at Thomas, there's an encouragement for us. He stays within the faith community, even in the midst of his doubts and his questions. And if you're coming this morning and you have doubts and you have questions and you're not sure about the resurrection of Jesus and and faith and don't know what to do with it, this is my one encouragement to you is that when you don't know, don't go. When you don't know, don't go. When you're not sure, don't leave. When you're not sure, don't isolate yourself. Because I think we can all relate to Thomas. There's things that we don't know. There's things we'd want to know. There's experiences we'd like to have. There's hopes that we feel like are unmet. And Thomas, in the midst of that space, for the next week, stays with the faith community. Whether it's a week, whether it's a month, maybe it's a year, maybe it's longer. I think Thomas encourages us to remain in the faith community, even in uncertainty and doubt and questions. Faith and doubt are actually not opposites. They're only opposites if you equate faith with certitude. But the word faith doesn't mean certitude. The word faith literally means trust. And it is possible to trust something even when you don't understand something. When you don't know, don't go. And Thomas stays. He remains. He's with his friends. And then a week later... Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then it's like he looks across the room and he locks eyes with Thomas. And then he says to Thomas, Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus locks eyes with Thomas. And Jesus wasn't there a week earlier when when Thomas said, unless I see, unless I touch with my own hands, I am not going to believe. Jesus wasn't there, but Jesus knew what Thomas needed. Jesus knew what Thomas needed. And if you're struggling with doubt, struggling with questions, you're struggling with disappointment, Jesus knows what you need. Jesus knows what you need. The question is, Are you willing to wait? Are you willing to remain in the community of faith even when you don't know? And then Thomas, after he has this encounter with Jesus that he was hoping for and and desiring, Jesus says to him, stop doubting and believe. And this literally in the original language is, do not be unbelieving, but be believing. And if you want to go even more literal than that, in the, in the Greek language, it is, do not be unfaithing, be faithing. I'm like, that's a really weird thing to say. Because in the Greek, faith is a verb and a noun. It's a verb and a noun. And in English, we don't have a verb for the word faith. And so when we translate it, we often translate it as trusting or believing or something like that. But in the actual uh, original language that they were speaking in and writing in this the word that they're using is faithing. 
And so we translate it as believe, and sometimes that causes us to miss the point, because often when we read it in our culture and we read the words believe, we think this is about intellectual certitude. So we read this as of Jesus saying, stop doubting, and even though you don't understand it, just believe it. And so when we read it, like, how do I believe something that I don't believe? You know, we get caught in this intellectual conundrum. This isn't what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Thomas, you haven't trusted the story. Thomas, you haven't trusted what your friends have told, told you. Thomas, you haven't trusted me. But now that you've seen me, would you place your trust back in me? I know you don't understand it. I know you still might have questions and doubt. I, still, I know you might wonder how this all happened. But very simply, I'm asking you to stop doubting, stop unfaithing, and put your faith and your trust into me. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas's story changes when Jesus shows up. Thomas' story changes when Jesus shows up. And we have misunderstood faith as a what word instead of a who word. We've un- under- misunderstood faith as primarily being about beliefs about something rather than trust in something. And the thing is, when we elevate knowing, intellectual knowing above trusting, we find ourselves right at the beginning of the Bible story, if you know the story of Adam and Eve, where they started to go off course was when they wanted knowledge more than they trusted God. That is not to say that knowledge isn't important. It just means that there's a limit to our knowledge, and sometimes our own knowledge prevents us from placing our trust in Jesus. Everybody has to trust something. Everybody puts their faith and trust into something, no matter what intellectual thoughts and convictions you might have. We all choose to trust something. Even an atheist chooses to trust in themselves. So Jesus says to Thomas, stop doubting believe Thomas responds to this experience by acknowledging that Jesus is Lord and God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and have believed. It's as if Jesus, after staring at Thomas, now stares through the course of history and he's now looking at you and me and he's saying, blessed is Thomas who believed because he saw. Now, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed is me who actually will trust in the resurrection of Jesus because of the eyewitness accounts of those who were there. Blessed are we who have not seen but have chosen to believe, to have faith, to trust because of what we've been told. And then John goes on to say this. He said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The reason that Matthew wrote things down, the reason that Mark wrote things down, the reason that Peter, the reason that Paul and John and Paul, I already said Paul, um, the other guys, James, (laughs) the reason that these guys wrote these things down was that we would have an eyewitness account so that we too would believe in experiencing, and we would experience life in his name. And we read that, we're like, well, don't we have life? John is telling us there is a life that is better than life. John is actually using a word here that is describing life 
being one of thriving instead of just surviving. John is telling us that because of the resurrection, there is an eternal life that is available to those that place their trust in Jesus. See, Thomas was a doubter. Thomas had his questions. But Thomas went from being a doubter to a martyr. Thomas, because he had seen the resurrected Jesus, went and preached the gospel to modern-day Iran and India. He shared the faith of his other friends and the faith of a Savior, Jesus. He would be speared to death for his faith in Jesus because he would not deny that he saw the resurrected Jesus. He couldn't deny what he saw. And because of what he saw, he no longer feared death because he saw life on the other side of death. He was an eyewitness to life on the other side of death. So I would invite you to consider where you are as you come here this Easter morning, as we listen to the eyewitness accounts of those people that were there. I think some of us can relate to Thomas. I think some of us aren't ready to believe. We're not ready to trust. We're not ready to put a stake in the ground and say, this is what I'm going to bake my life on. But the question for you is whether you'll be courageous enough to stay within the faith community, knowing that Jesus knows what you need and then wait on him. I'm going to invite you to stand with me before we end in a closing song. Uh, And I want to invite you to consider your response uh, this morning. And I I just invite you to close your eyes, for each and every one of us to close our eyes. Um, This is about you and Jesus and this event that changed the course of history, this event that might change the course of your history. And if you're someone here this morning who, maybe because of unmet expectations, maybe you've been on the outside looking in, maybe you've had trouble for putting your faith and your trust into Jesus for whatever reason, and you're just not there yet. The story of Thomas tells us that's okay. I think the question for you is whether you would consider committing to remaining in the faith community even in the midst of my doubts and questions. And so with with all of our eyes closed, I just want to invite you, if that is you this morning, and you feel the Holy Spirit is just tugging on your heart to say, remain here, wait here, would you just raise your hand and say, that's that's me. Just raise a hand. Thank you. There might be others here who want to put your faith and trust into Jesus for the first time. In John 3.16, John, who wrote these things down, he says, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, whoever puts their trust into him will not perish but have everlasting life. And if that's your desire to make that step of belief and trust this morning, I would invite you just to raise your hand and say, that's me. I want to place my trust in Jesus. Thank you. And lastly, 
I think we lose sight of the fact that Thomas, that there was a space made for Thomas in the community of faith. That Thomas made room, that the community of faith made room for Thomas. And sometimes, as followers of Jesus, we can be quite exclusive instead of inclusive, quite intolerant of other people's own journeys. And maybe there's a Thomas in your life that you actually need to invite back in. Invite back into your life in the midst of their doubts and questions and the journey they're on. And if you feel like maybe the Lord's placing on your heart the conviction to make more space in your life for someone that you know is on a journey that's different than yours, would you raise your hand? Thank you. Let me pray for you. Lord, for those who come in this morning who come with their disappointments, their hurts, their doubts, their questions, who feel like they've been on the outside looking in and listening to other people's stories about you, but never experiencing it for themselves. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them through your Holy Spirit this morning. That you would encourage them with the courage and the ability to wait. That you would encourage them that you know what they need. May we be like Thomas and wait in the community of faith even when we're not sure we have faith. Lord, for those who are responding for the first time and saying, I want to place my faith in you. Jesus, we just rejoice because of that decision that they're part of the family of God, that their lives have been forever changed, that they have experienced life that is better than life. And we thank you for the promise of resurrection. Lord, we thank you for saving us, for forgiving us. And Lord, we pray for those who you've called to be light and salt, You've you've put them in the path of other people that have questions and doubts and experiences that are different than theirs. And and maybe this morning is is the encouragement, Lord, to be more faithful in their faith, to be more generous in their faith, to be more inclusive in their community. Lord, that you would actually bring resurrection hope to people that need it through them. May you show us what it means to be your hands, your feet, your voice, that we too would be eyewitness accounts to who you are so that others would know and believe. So Jesus, thank you for your resurrection. We thank you that there is hope beyond what we see. There's hope beyond the grave. We thank you that you give us life today and forever. And Lord, we thank you for what you did 2,000 years ago that changed the course of history and changed the course of our history. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
Amen. Thank you for joining us this Easter Sunday. It's been great to worship with you, to reflect on the resurrection of Jesus and what that means uh, for us. Uh, we would love to pray with you, for you. If there's anything uh, that you would want to pray for, perhaps you're someone that raised a hand, um, we would invite you to come forward. Uh, we have prayer teams available at the end of the service at the front. Uh, we just invite you to come forward for that. Um, other than that, we uh, invite you back next week as we continue our uh, Revelation series. Oh, no, that's not next week. In two weeks, we have a guest speaker next week, and it's going to be great. Uh, and uh, I promise you, you won't want to miss it. So uh, thanks for coming. Have a great week uh, living in light of the resurrection. We'll see you next week.